0: Do you enjoy nature, or are you tied to your screens? This is Talk of the Town on Magic 590 and 100.5. I'm Bob Cudmore. We're also heard in the North Country on 1410 and 96.9. We welcome to the program environmental educator Anita Sanchez. Her award-winning books sing the praises of unloved plants and animals. Her first summer job, leading kids on nature walks, turned into a lifelong passion for nature. Anita is the former director of educational programming at the Delmar Five Rivers Center for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. She now is a freelance educator, providing programs for schools, libraries, and museums. She lives in the town of Florida. Well, let me ask you this. Do kids today get enough opportunities to be in the outdoors?
1: (laughs) Well, um, in my opinion, no, they don't. Kids spend a lot of time indoors. And when they do do go outdoors, they're often on a mowed lawn playing soccer, which is great. I offer playing soccer and getting exercise. The kids are very rarely outdoors in nature. They very rarely go out in the woods, walk through a meadow, you know look at frogs by a pond, get muddy. It's an experience that I think this generation of kids just isn't getting. Why
0: did that happen?
1: Well, a lot of things. Um, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff to do indoors, like computer games. Um, and also, part of it is, I think, the climate of fear that we live in. People are scared of a lot of things. You know, rabies, stranger danger, um Maybe parents are more watchful these days, but kids just don't stray off the sidewalk. And also, there's less nature out there. When I was a kid, there was a huge woodland area right behind my home. Mm-hmm. That's all gone now. That's a housing development.
0: Sure. Uh, you live in upstate New York, and you write a blog called unmode.com often uh, chronicling the unnoticed plants that you find in urban environments, such as?
1: Well, um, I once took a walk around uh, a block in Albany, uh, downtown Albany, and I counted 24 species of wildflowers. I think a lot of people think of nature as something that you have to go to maybe once a week on a Saturday You take a nature walk for an hour or once a year you go on a vacation and you see some nature at a national park. But nature's all around us every day. We're part of it. And even in urban environments, there's moss between the cracks of bricks and there's flowers blooming in the cracks between the pavement. And in shopping malls, you know, those little areas nearby where you park your car and there's a little island of greenery. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of bird nesting activity going on in there we just don't stop to notice it because we think of nature as something that's only in the nature center or the park
0: Mm -hmm. well assuming that this is a a desired goal for uh, kids today to go into nature more wherever it is do you have any advice for parents and grandparents How, how do you you get the kids to do these things
1: Well, I think you just have to go there. I think sometimes parents think, oh, I don't know anything about nature. I can't answer questions. I don't know about it, so it's not something I'm comfortable with. But I think kids don't need to go out into nature and learn a science lesson. They just need the time, the unstructured time to just muck around and, you know, play with sticks and rocks and, uh, you know, just experience the outdoors, Mm. which is how I grew up in in the morning, I would just say, Bye, Mom, I'll be back for lunch. And I would just go hang out in the woods for three or four hours. Yeah. And I think it's a very rare kid who does that these days.
0: Yeah, even I did that when I was young. And I'm not really an outdoorsman. I'm more of an indoorsman. I think I yeah. told you that when I met you in person once. Uh, but uh, so many, you we already referenced this, but again today, young people, children, have really structured lives. I mean, you know, the soccer and, uh, and all these things are good, you know, like gymnastics or, you know, whatever they're, whatever they're doing, and there is not that much free time, it seems.
1: Yeah, that's really true. And even, you know, even if you do have an hour between, you know, karate and football or something like that to kill, you know, again, when I was a kid, I could just go out in the back and climb a tree. Most kids, when, if they have a free hour, and they go out in the yard, it's it's a mowed lawn. There's nothing to do in the yard except maybe throw a Frisbee. So, you know, they go back in and play a a video game. So Mm -hmm. one thing we really need is more green spaces, more open spaces, less mowed lawn and more chunks of yard that are wild and on mode, which is why that's the reason of, that's the name of my blog, on Mode." The idea that we need to leave some areas in our lives that are Wild and not tended and scheduled
0: in mode. We're talking with environmental educator Anita Sanchez. Can you tell us more about a, a post that you made uh, that I saw uh, in, during the winter in, on mode? And, and uh, again, this is an example of what you can find in nature, something I never, never really thought of. You talked about the branching patterns of trees.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is that. I used to hate the season of winter. I think a lot of people hate winter. And I spent all of my winter longing for spring and wishing winter would go away. And I finally realized I was wasting a quarter of my year not enjoying the season that was there. So I started looking for ways to enjoy winter. And one of the things that I now love about winter is the bare branches of the trees and that those beautiful patterns that they make against the sky. They're really beautiful, But they're also really, I don't want to use the word planned because plants don't plan things like humans do. They don't have a brain like humans do. But each one of those twigs is angled so that the leaves that will be growing on it, you know, in the summer, are going to get the maximum sunlight. Mm -hmm. So every twig on that tree is angled for maximum solar gain. And I mean, just imagine if we built our homes that way. You know, we tend to just right. clear the land, you plunk down a housing development. We we don't give a thought to, well, where's the sun shining? Where's the wind going to blow? How can I maximize my solar gain and use less energy? And trees uh, have evolved so that they're incredibly responsive to their environment, to the wind, to the sun. So that was my my blog post was about enjoying the not only the beauty, but appreciating the amazing design of the trees.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really remarkable to think that it works out that way. It isn't just some random ways these branches go. There's a purpose. Right. Are we in maple sugar time now? And can you explain why trees produce something sweet?
1: Oh, yeah, yes. This is the height of maple. Sugaring season, although in the past few years it's really hard to know exactly when the sap is going to start flowing because the maple the sap moves through the maple trees in the time of year when the temperature is above freezing during the day but below freezing at night. Traditionally, that would fall in early March, although in past years it's sometimes been in January or February. Climate change is starting to affect our weather patterns, so it's hard to say when it's going to fall. But the reason that there's sweet stuff inside not just maple trees, but lots of kinds of trees, is that those leaves that grow on the tree in summer do photosynthesis. They make sugars, which are food for the tree, but a lot of these sugars are stored up in the trunk to help the tree grow new leaves
0: Hmm.
1: next summer. So when the sap starts to move through the tree, it's carrying those sweet sugars in it, and if we drill a small hole in the maple tree, then, you know, we tap some of it and turn it into that great syrup.
0: Do you know, why is it we just tap the sugar in in uh, maple trees? I mean, or or do people tap sugar or get sugar from other trees as well?
1: Well, you, you actually could theoretically tap any kind of tree because all trees have mm-hmm. sap. You could make uh, birch syrup. In fact, I have uh, actually once tried birch syrup. You can make syrup from other types of trees but sugar maples have the highest percentage of sugar in their sap so you know you have to boil it to get rid of the excess water with other types of trees you would have to boil it even way more to get mm-hmm. to the, such a low percentage of sugar sugar maples just are the sweetest they manufacture the most sugars you can mm-hmm. actually tap any kind of maple I've, I've had red maple syrup which is a different species of of maple, and it's very good.
0: You've written a number of books. Let me ask you about some of them. You've written a book for young people and then another one for adults on poison ivy. What would bring you to do two books on that topic?
1: I'm often asked that question. Um, Poison ivy is something, from a human point of view, it's an annoyance. If, If you're allergic to it, which most people are, it can cause an itchy rash, but if you look at the natural world from a non-human viewpoint, it's an incredibly valuable plant. It's a Native American plant. It was here long before the you know before Columbus got here. Poison ivy's been here for thousands and thousands of years, mm-hmm. and wildlife really depend on it. It has berries, which animals can eat, and they're a really important survival food in This time of year, late winter, for um, a lot of songbirds, robins, bluebirds, mockingbirds, cardinals, they all feed on poison ivy berries. So the reason I wrote the book was to get people to start thinking about the importance of native plants for wildlife. So the children's book, which is called Leaflets 3 has all these wonderful illustrations. I, I didn't do them. I'm not an artist. Um, but my, I was lucky to have a fabulous illustrator who did beautiful illustrations. They're actually, in, in the pages of the book, there's 77 different animals hidden among the leaves of poison ivy. And all these animals are using the poison ivy for food or for nesting material or for shelter. Hmm.
0: And the poison ivy doesn't hurt the animals as as it does to hurt no, the humans? No,
1: it's it's only people, we're the only species that gets the itches from poison ivy. So, for instance, cardinals will use poison ivy to build, you know, some some of the material from the vines. They'll use it to build their nests and raise their babies in it. It's only people that get that rash. So, to for animals, it's a really helpful plant. Lots of animals eat the leaves, deer chew on it, rabbits chew on it. Doesn't bother them at all.
0: Because maybe, uh, I don't know, again, the poison ivy doesn't think, as you said earlier about another thing from the animal or plant kingdom, but is it specifically to keep people away from it so we don't disturb it and let them grow?
1: No. Actually, poison ivy evolved to have this chemical in it that causes the rash, but poison ivy evolved many millennia before humans came on the scene. The, The... It's a resin that's found in the leaves that causes the reaction to to humans. That's just an unfortunate coincidence. It's actually designed, I mean, scientists think that probably that resin evolved to protect the plant from insects because Mm -hmm. poison ivy is a plant that insects love to chew on. So this resin is thick and sticky and helps discourage insects from chewing on the plant. It's just an unfortunate coincidence that it also causes a rash, on primates so actually not only humans but for instance gorillas or you know monkeys would also get poison ivy but of course they don't usually come mm. into contact with it but it's, it's just us but things like rabbits and deer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. foxes and birds don't get the rash
0: We're talking with Anita Sanchez about some of her books now you've also written in praise of dandelions many people see them as an annoying weed what do you say in their defense
1: well, my my niche as a writer is sort of writing about parts of nature that people ordinarily don't like, like dandelions, poison ivy, spiders, um, because I'm trying to get people to relax and enjoy nature. Dandelions are not a native species; they originally came from uh, the Middle East, but they're really harmless. They don't harm the environment, and lots of birds, like goldfinches, will eat their seeds. There are the the flowers in the early spring are a great source of nectar for bees, so they're helpful to wildlife, and they don't hurt people. The only thing about them is that it's a cosmetic problem. They mess up our lawns. They destroy the beautiful mm. symmetry of that, you know, perfect green lawn. But if you enjoy having butterflies and goldfinches and humming bees, honeybees around your garden, then you want to leave some dandelions so that. The wildlife can come and enjoy them, too.
0: Yeah. I've always been kind of a fan of dandelions, maybe despite what my neighbors think or even other members of my family. I know they get kind of ugly looking, but they're really pretty when they're first in the lawn.
1: Well, I've always liked them. Ever since I was a kid, I liked them because they're the one flower that kids can pick and not get in trouble. You know, if you pick your neighbor's tulips, you get in trouble, (laughs) but, you know, kids can go out and all the dandelions they want so i love that kids anything that gets kids outdoors and touching plants and mm-hmm. picking flowers and stuff i think is a good thing and kids can pick dandelions and not you know affect the environment in a bad way you don't want kids out there picking you know pink lady slipper orchids or something like that That's right. rare but go ahead and enjoy making you know a dandelion chain
0: Years ago, I lived in the Berkshires, and there was sort of this informal club, a lot of Italian-Americans in it, uh, called the Dandelion Eaters of America, where they would have a um, banquet every spring featuring dandelion salad.
1: Really? I had not heard of them. I would have put them in my book if I had, Um, because my my book is about all the ways people have used dandelions. They were used in magic and witchcraft. They've been used for um, food, of course. Um, there's there's a tradition, often uh, Italian-Americans, but uh, lots of other cultures too, a tradition of eating dandelions in the early spring. And there's a reason for that. They're very high in vitamin C.
0: Mm-hmm. The greens
1: I'm talking about, they're very high in vitamin C. And in times before we had things like vitamin pills and cartons of orange juice at our disposal, most people had a lack of vitamin C, especially in the Early spring, late winter, when there mm-hmm. just there hadn't been any fresh greens, and dandelions are the first thing to green up. And so you, dandelions have probably saved a lot of lives because people who were getting, you know, sick and getting illnesses because they had low vitamin C hmm. would eat dandelion greens, and then you'd feel better.
0: And as I recall, the trick was to to harvest your dandelions early. I mean, because as the season wore on, the the green part became more bitter.
1: That's exactly right. You want to get the leaves before the flowers come. So if you can see the flowers, the leaves are bitter. It's like if, when you grow lettuce and it bolts, mm-hmm. then it gets bitter. It's flowering the plants, undergoing chemical changes. It tastes bitter. You want to get those dandelion greens before you see the flowers, and then they're they're mild and sweet and crisp. They're really good in salads, but there's sort of a narrow window to get them at their best.
0: Mm-hmm. Your ninth book was published in 2019 called Rotten, Vultures, Beetles, and Slime, Nature's Decomposers. What's that all about?
1: Well, again, that's my niche of writing about parts of nature that people tend not to like. And I'm trying to show the value in parts of nature that we are turned off by. So this this book, of course, is for kids. And it's about things that might make them go, ooh, I don't want to go outdoors, I hate nature, but um, my hope is that the book will get them interested in things like beetles, snails, slugs, who are doing a very important service of taking things that have died, a dead log or whatever, and breaking it mm-hmm. down into its basic molecules so that then new life can grow from it. So I had a lot of fun writing it. There was I started off by talking about mummies when I was a fourth grader I was fascinated by mummies Mm -hmm. and of course mummies were Egyptians attempt to try to not have things decompose so the book starts off with mummies and then it goes into dung beetles and vultures and all sorts of hopefully enjoyably gross things that kids like to read about.
0: Well Anita Sanchez they sound like a variety of books. Uh, Do you have a website or are these available in bookstores or what's the story?
1: Yeah you can You can, you know, order them online or get them through pretty much any bookstore. I do have a website, which is just AnitaSanchez.com.
0: AnitaSanchez.com. Another, a different topic. You've been a volunteer with the Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful organization. Um, Basically, their main goal, I think... I don't want to speak for them, but uh, their main goal is, is to buy land and keep it safe from development and keep it in green, open space. And right up near where I live in Amsterdam is a wonderful preserve. It's called the Mosier Marsh, and it's a beautiful wetland area, cattail marsh. I've seen beavers, and uh, I think I saw otter tracks there, and muskrat, all kinds of amazing wildlife, herons. And the once the... Mohawk Land Conservancy has purchased the land. Then it's open to the public, and anyone can go there and hike and enjoy nature.
0: Mm. And this w- preservation lasts over time. I mean, you know what I mean. In other words, somebody's not going to come in ten years and develop there, or
1: right. The I, I don't know. You know, a lot of the details of the legalities of the land acquisition, but at least the preserves that are open to the public. Their aim is to have them always be available to people, to the public, to enjoy. And as as we were saying before, you know, when when we were kids, there might be a whole woodland area right in your backyard, but for most kids, that's not the case anymore. So while we do need things like national parks, we also need small local green spaces Mm -hmm. where families can go and, not just families, anyone can go Mm -hmm. and hang out, and just enjoy nature for half an hour, you know, on your lunch break. Mm -hmm. You know, we need green spaces that aren't far away from where people are most times.
0: You've been listening to Magic 590's Talk of the Town with author and Capital District Environmental Educator Anita Sanchez. I'm Bob Cudmore. Talk of the Town is heard on Magic 590 plus 100.5 and 1410 and 96.9 in the North Country. The program is available as a podcast on albanymagic.com and bobcutmore.com.